So that's why I think this stuff is actually exciting and fun. It's like it's time to get serious and say, well, what executive functions are important for this business? How much are we investing in them? And who is responsible for them? I would be extremely fastidious, extremely detail-oriented, responsive, and trustworthy. And I would offer those advisory services to founders who want to know where every dollar in their organization is going. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, Ian, we just finished this one. It was pretty good. We gave a an API and a UI ranking to the number one ranked city in the world based on Wikipedia. So you got to stick around to hear that. We also talked about why there's an epidemic of ninja happiness warriors in the business game. We also talked about how building org charts can be a fun and easy way to have strategic breakthroughs in your business. And also, I'm going to outline the number one business opportunity I see for people seeking to make a jump in their career based on our time hanging out with seven and eight figure founders just this past weekend. Stick around and we're going to fly you virtually to the greatest city in the world. Coach class, not business class. It's not business class. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Ian. Yo. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Recovering. We got a lot of stories. We're back from New York, our first event in New York City in some time. Are you familiar with this thing called the Global Cities Index? No. I don't know exactly what factors they use, but I always like these indexes that rank global cities on the level of their importance. Another way to put it might be like if aliens were on a road trip and they dropped by the TMBA podcast and they were like, look, we don't have a lot of time to hang out on Earth. What do you think is the city that we should stop by? Can you guess what the number one recommended city to aliens is? This is like a softball, man. Come on. New York City. It's got to be. It's New York City. <laughs> it has to be. Which, which makes sense because... There's aliens that live in New York City, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> like, I mean, New Yorkers are a unique breed of people. By the way, the other cities on the index, London, number two, Paris, Tokyo, and Beijing, rounding out the uh, top five. But Sorry to all those uh, South American countries uh, like Brazil that have six million people in Rio. <laughs> you didn't make the list, but London, who closes down at 10 p.m., you made the list. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you can rig it, you know? <laughs> Personally, I had such a great time in New York City. I feel like everything's important to New Yorkers. There's just a lot of strong opinions and loud conversations everywhere that you're constantly overhearing. It all starts at the boarding gate. And it just doesn't end until you leave. And I was animated by it. I loved it. <laughs> it's so true. We stayed at this hotel and like the hotel lobby served as like a basically a public space for people mm -hmm. that weren't staying at the hotel. So it was really fun to get to see like a bunch of New Yorkers come into this hotel, like get coffee, open up their laptops, talk about stuff with strong opinions. There was all kinds of holiday decorations everywhere. 
as the kids say, New York City at the wintertime, it's a vibe. It was super cool. You know, people coming to town to shop, all kinds of tourists and foreigners there. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's also, you know, a great town to go out and party. I think the bars pretty much stay open all night. Just a suggestion on the closing time. And New Yorkers, they have these small apartments, so they're all down in the streets hanging out in their communal living room while taking tequila shots. So the conversations just get a little bit more intense later into the evening. Bartenders included. We were down at the speakeasy and like the bartenders were shooting back shots. Yeah. In Austin, we're talking about the next pickleball match or the next walk we're going to go on and enjoying some non-alcoholic beers. Like that's not a trend that's hit New York. (laughs) Totally. And after you're done over drinking, there is absolutely no judgment in terms of how much pizza you're going to eat. So 100%. You have to go get the, the slice afterwards. And the slice price varies between $1. And people have a lot of opinions about the $1 slice. And I even got a $5 slice. I don't know if it goes up from there, but I did enjoy my $5 slice. I got a $5 slice. And I got to say, it's worth the extra dollars. It was, it was delicious. <laughs> you know, it's just a nice place to be, I'd say, in your life to be able to afford the $5 slice, especially in New York. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of affording things, we went to a Brooklyn Nets game and rented out the Skybox, which was incredible. But that also came with a fridge full of expensive, fancy beverages, of which many of our wealthy clients were stuffing, (laughs) I can't even say without laughing, stuffing the beverages into their winter jackets on the way out, um, which was something that you encouraged. Because why not? We paid for them, right? Look, there is no amount of money. And again, this is just an unfortunate situation. There's no amount of money that she can make, which makes free booze sound like a bad idea. Like, (laughs) even if you can afford the whole fridge and all the drinks that are in there, you must take them home with you and drink more than you should. How do you know you're not going to live in New York City? How do I know I'm not going to live in New York City? Because it's the kind of place that you love for a weekend, me especially, you love for a weekend, but I, it would just absolutely grind on you, I think, after some time. <laughs> and now that I have a family, you know, I was walking through Brooklyn, there's a preschool, and on the window, it said Brooklyn Preschool for the Arts. <laughs> and I just thought, isn't every preschool for the arts? How much are you charging for this? There's a cost, there's a kid tax, in the, it's expensive. It's expensive to take a kid with you to New York. Look, in Tokyo, you don't see any children because they have to act a certain way before you bring them into public. <laughs> I'm exaggerating here, but in New York, you don't see children because it's just too expensive. Yeah, it's a tax. The, the, yeah. You leave them at the tunnel, at the daycare, <laughs> at the tunnel. <laughs> All right, here's we're going to start a new tradition on the show, Ian. A few episodes ago, we gave a ranking to Bangkok in terms of the UI and the API of the place. That is to say the user interface and the application programming interface, or the API. Now, a lot of our listeners have written us emails about this. They love the UI versus API rankings for cities. I just want to describe a little bit what the API thing is, and then we'll, we'll link to this part of the episode in future apps. So user interface, using Twitter as an example, would be how the app feels and looks. And for the sake of the metaphor, it's how a city will treat you within zero to six months of you being there. That's the UI of a city. Now, an API, that's like if you wanted to build one of those apps that published tweets or scheduled tweets on Twitter, you would need to send that data into Twitter HQ and sort of have an agreement about how that data goes back and forth between the two apps. That's an API. So in other words, you're doing something more serious. You kind of have to plug in a little bit. You got to play by some rules. There might be some negotiations involved. 
And that's the phase of a city where you're there from, call it six months to six years. So it's basically like, look, is it a good place to like nomad for a little bit or is it a good place to live? Let's give NYC our rankings. On the UI index, again, we gave Bangkok a 10.3 out of 10 on the UI index. I'm going to give <laughs> New York City a 7.5 because although it's expensive, I think you're getting your money's worth. You're getting a ton of amazing experiences in a small place. You're probably going to have a lot of meetings with interesting people. You're going to have conversations that move your business forward or your life. Therefore, I think spending a short amount of time in New York City, definitely above average, 7.5. On the API side, it's weird. It's tough to give it a ranking because a lot of times you move to New York and it can completely change your life. That said, a lot of times you move to New York, you spend six months trying to find a crappy apartment, and then you move out a couple of years later because the place beats you up. So I don't know which way to go with this one, but I'm going to give it a four because I think thanks to the power of the internet, we don't need to be based in a place like New York in order to advance our careers. So we'll give it a four on the API. It's super hard. It's super hard to get serious with New York. Therefore, give it that low API score. In terms of a UI, I think I might grade a little bit lower than you. You guys went to my favorite concept of a bar and I went to bed early because I didn't know it existed and it was two doors down. And it was simply this. It was a listening bar with vintage audio equipment. This is my dream. And it was two doors down from the hotel and I didn't know it existed. So in terms of a UI, I think like you kind of operate at a street level until you have some kind of intelligence from your friends or other information. So the UI can be a little bit different. Of course, if you want to find a diner, that's easy. But some of these other things, like you kind of have to live there for a while to like figure out where the best things are, where the interesting things are that meet your standards. From an API, you have to have a broker to rent an apartment in New York City. Like you can't just rock up to the Craigslist listing. You have to work with somebody. And then like it's this whole nightmare process. So API definitely does not sound good. Speaking of APIs, uh, I was invited to this one of the cooler clubs or bars in New York a few months ago. But I was there for another reason, a bike race. So I, all I had was like a hoodie and some jeans, you know? So I take the invite because the people are really interested and I'm standing in the line. And I think you know where this story is going. I was not allowed into the bar unless I paid a premium of $600. I think uh, I'm imagining this story. I think she actually called you Pencil Tucky. She said, Pencil Tucky, that'll be $600 to get through the door here. You know what's interesting about that as a UI thing? Uh, Pretty sure it would have been cheaper just to pay the $600 than to like redo my look. That would have cost way more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we'll put it into books. UI 7.5 API for, you know, but for a weekend, we'll give it a 10. New York City, what a great place. So there was 25 seven and eight figure founders at this event, even a nine figure founder, I guess you could say. We talked about we would sort of write down some reflections. One of the concepts that really came up for me is that we have an epidemic of ninja happiness warriors. Ninja happiness. This is, my, this is what I wrote on the airplane on the way back home. Titles like chief happiness officer, time ninja, growth hacker, full stack magician. Everybody just gets to write their own titles out now. Whatever you like, just go for it. But it occurred to me, Ian, there's something even worse than naming yourself something ridiculous, which is fine. You can call yourself chief stick of dynamite if you want, or <laughs> number one coconut if you want to do that. That's fine. <laughs> Fuse lighter. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's right. Fuse lighter. That's hilarious. <laughs> I insist on being called fuse lighter and everybody like has to do it. This is like <laughs> mutual humiliation. But you know what's even worse than this is actually inappropriately naming or indicating the level of people on your team. I'll tell you this is the way this like commonly manifests. You run a small company. That company starts to get a little bit bigger. And you hire someone that you work with on a daily basis and they're your number one. They're your lieutenant. And so since you're the CEO of global operations, they become the COO. And this is like by default, basically. Yeah, and I think it, we often do it for positive reasons, which is like we want to indicate to this person that we trust them to run the company. We want them to grow with us and we want to make it a huge success together. But I often think it does everyone a disservice to give inflated titles. I'll just reveal the most common thing I see, which is to give a junior person the GM title. It's actually really common because as a small company that's growing, you have a junior person who's amazing and who's doing a lot of the work. And you basically say, well, you're the GM and you're doing the back end and I'm doing the front. I'm out there selling and you're doing the delivery and you're the GM. And so now this person is the general manager, which is essentially like an executive level position. And it can lead to frustration because say, for example, here's what can happen. So, so, say you have somebody around the office that you call the GM. And then you're like, well, I need to have a strategy meeting because I need to talk about how much capital we need to pursue this particular growth strategy. So then you invite the GM to the meeting and you involve them. You show them the P&L, you show them the strategy, you talk it all through. Then a month later, you might find yourself frustrated that they haven't done anything with the information that was reviewed in that meeting. Well, that's because you actually had an executive level meeting with a coordinator or with a manager. You didn't have two executives in the meeting. Now, that doesn't mean that that person that's working with you can't be an executive someday. But if you're calling them an executive right now, it does everyone a disservice for a few reasons. Number one, like it can create needless frustration. You know, it's like, well, why don't they understand? I've shared the information. Well, there's a clear reason they didn't understand because they're not yet at executive level. Another thing it can do is it doesn't give them clear benchmarking with people outside of your organization. Most of our companies aren't, especially when it comes to operations, aren't special snowflakes. They can then interact with their counterparts at other companies and learn how to go from, say, coordinator up to manager, up to director, up to executive. They can look at other companies and learn from them best practices about how they can grow their careers. And I think that's the irony here, Ian. A lot of times we give inflated titles as a token of our desire for them to grow. And the irony is it actually can hurt their opportunity to do that because we're not agreed upon where they are at at this moment. Give us an example here of like the different levels in a company. What yeah. are these roles? There's a bunch of different ways to do this, but like here's a simple one, Ian. You start with executives. And typically, not always, founders are performing the executive role. And that's doing long-term planning, having a clear growth strategy or capital strategy, setting and making sure like top level goals are met and essentially setting the strategy and the roadmap for that strategy at a high level. Now, directors take the strategy, 
requisition funds and set specific plans, especially personnel plans, for executing the strategy in the operation. Then a manager would exist underneath the director, and they're people who are responsible for specific goals that are a part of that plan that the director set, and they manage coordinators or junior-level people who are doing specific tasks and projects that are related to the goals that the manager is tracking. So that's a typical way titles would roll out across an organization. And the reason it's interesting is because if, say, you have a team member who is a manager, but they have a hard time requisitioning funds, they have a hard time setting personnel plans, they have a hard time managing executives and managing up and galvanizing feedback to the executive team about the plausibility of the plans, then you can have a conversation that's like, well, here's how a manager deals with this and here's how a director deals with this. Here's like the skill gap there. Here's the experience gap. Here's how we can go from one to the other. The other opportunity it opens you up to, and this is really important, is it creates space for you to bring people in that are senior. This is something that often happens in fast-growing companies is that, oh, wow, we need a director now or we need another executive or we need another manager. And if you've been calling your current person that, What this does is it it creates like literal and conceptual space for you to bring in somebody that could mentor your current GM, the person you're calling GM, or that could help them up-level their skills and have that be uh, an excellent outcome for everybody. So I think just being clear about these things has been something we've been thinking a lot about over the past few years. And I'll tell you specifically how it manifests for us is we would often over-delegate. I call it just a problem of over-delegation where when you have a a decision that you have to make based on unclear information and it takes a lot of emotional courage and you kind of have to like make a call, that's typically an executive level thing. And I think what we do often is, is sort of bring other people into those tricky decisions as a way to like show trust in them and to involve them. But I also think it often ends with a bad outcome. Because it's really a decision for an executive to make. And having these blurred lines about where everyone is in the organization, it doesn't often achieve the outcome I think we're seeking, which is is to give our team members a sense of trust and a message that they can grow and improve as the company grows. For me, and I think a lot of uh, founders listening to the show are in this position, which uh, never worked at like a quote real company. And so like, how do we learn about these different roles? Because we start these businesses and we don't have any frame of reference for this if we didn't come from the corporate world or the startup world. So how do we educate ourselves on like the different roles that exist in these companies? I think having the will to do it is the main thing. There's a lot of resources out there that you can decide like what an executive and a director looks like versus a manager and a coordinator in your company. For that matter, what a board member and an advisor looks like. So maybe I'll answer it with another whole framework, which is org charts. Let's talk about how org charts are actually super fun and sexy. So I think you can answer the question for yourself by building out an org chart that recognizes these classical distinctions between people at different levels in a company. And here's the crazy thing. I think a lot of founders see an org chart as just like a busy work thing to do, but I actually use them for brainstorming. Here's how that works. So if you think about a y-axis, You can put people in the levels of the organization at the top, you have advisor, below you have executive, then director, then manager, then coordinator. So say, for example, you don't have any people at a director level, that part of your org chart would be blank. 
So you can visualize that. You're actually putting people on the org chart where they exist in these classical distinctions. That's one way you can start to answer these questions for yourself, which is, hey, if an executive makes these types of decisions, ask yourself, are people on your team actually making those types? And you can rename them for yourself. You don't necessarily need to do this with your team right away, but you can, for your own strategic purposes, give yourself a sense for where everyone sits in the organization. Another couple of things I like to do with org charts, you can do a zero-based org chart which is to say that you can write out the roles in your company irrespective of the people in your company. And I think this is a really interesting exercise as well. Like, what are the roles that your company needs and or should have? And then you can compare that to what your org chart is functionally on a day-to-day basis. That's one cool brainstorming hack. I got two more I want to share with you. Two other fun things you can do with org charts. The first is that you can revisit them with your team. This is a tip I got at DCX London from Lydia, and she was on the show a few months ago, where she basically writes out the org chart every 90 days with a new key area of responsibility for every single team member. We do this on our scorecards, but I think it's pretty cool to visualize it on an organizational chart as well. And that helps everyone to understand like where they sit. There's comfort and clarity in understanding how organizations work. I think as founders, we don't like organizational charts. And so we assume that other people don't like them. And so I'm trying to make them cool again. Final here, if you really want to make organizational charts cool, check out this one. Overlay circles that represent either profit or revenue on top of your org chart. And you can do this using like a big whiteboard or you can use it using something like Mural online. But if you actually put different product lines of revenue on top of the org chart, you can see if the team that you're investing in is correlated with how you're making money. And wow, that one can really, that, that can be a come to Jesus moment. You're like, I'm paying all this money over here to invest in these team members, but they're not actually working on where we make our money. And I think that that has a lot of potential to make org charts cool again. Yeah, we definitely had that realization last year. And it's like, what led us to basically an organizational reshuffle was that exact exercise, trying to figure out like the projects that people were working on and were they making money? And also, did they align with the strategic vision of the company? One thing I've seen a lot lately, Dan, is um, founders wanting to get out of their business and like hiring basically someone to come in and run the business. And another come to Jesus moment is figuring out as a founder or as like a CEO, like where you sit in the organization as is, before you go hire this person. So like, are you actually an executive? Are you a director? And in some cases, you might just be manager. You might have had an entrepreneurial moment. You came up with the product. The product, for whatever reason, made it to a good revenue, 100K a month. But you never really had to do any of these like executive or director roles in the organization. And then now you're kind of like bored with it because you're a zero to one type of person and you want to go do it again. And so you want to install somebody to come into the organization. And then you install the person, they come into the organization, but are you going to hire an executive, a director, or a manager? Oh, that's a really good one. That's a really good one. You know what I often see, Ian, is that the owner of the company will be advisor or board member, and then they'll hire that manager. And so there's like whole two levels of expertise and responsibility in any company that just aren't covered. Because like you said, they're sitting on the board and giving suggestions down to a manager There's no executive function. 
Right. And it starts to get even more sticky when you're an advisor in your company and you're taking all the profits for your salary. So this is another thing that happens all the time. It's like, hey, look, I own this company. I'm going to make my 250 grand a year. And then you have a manager. So you don't have any executive or director level person. And there's no opportunity for the company to grow because you're basically siphoning off the profits for your personal income. And you haven't created enough oxygen in the business for it to grow. Yep. I think a lot of us expect that director level people will grow a company. I mean, maybe they will or maybe they won't. But I think typically that's an executive skill set is being able to grow a company. And so if you're just paying a director and then you're sitting on the board taking all the hypothetical executive salary, but there's no executive function, that's a common challenge that we see organizations and founders change. So that's why I think this stuff is actually exciting and fun. It's like, it's time to get serious and say, well, what executive functions are important for this business? How much are we investing in them? And who is responsible for them? That's why org charts can be super cool. So one way you can you know, sort of have a takeaway from this is go build the ideal org chart for your company today and ask yourself if you were to start today, what would be the ideal team? How much would they all make? And what would their key responsibilities be? That can be a really fun thing to compare that with what you currently got. Hey, if you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. That's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking. One of the things that happens when you hang out with 25 incredibly successful founders as you see opportunities. And I walked with just this very clear opportunity. And I wrote it down like this. I said, be the money person. Be the money person. What did I mean by that? Of all these 25 founders, all of whom have incredible cash flows, many of them extraordinary personal wealth, not many of them are super happy with their accounting, with their bookkeeping, the financial advice they receive, and just with how their enterprises are run from a financial perspective. Now, why is this an opportunity? I think because learning how to run these types of businesses that we run on this show from a financial perspective is not a skill set that takes that long to learn. Let me put it this way. It's relatively easy for the opportunities it unlocks. Now, for me in my career, Back in 2004, that skill set was very clearly marketing, internet marketing, permission marketing. I got the sense that if I learned that skill set, I could get myself a seat at the table. And indeed, I did. And I was able to get equity and I was able to grow businesses. I see that same opportunity in this financial skill set today because marketing is a lot harder than it was back then. And it's a lot more competitive and it might take a more amount of time and focus to unlock that skill set in such a powerful way that you could get yourself equity in companies, that you could build your own companies. So here's how I do this. I would identify some sort of crash course in finance and then offer your advisory services to a, a handful of small companies. And I would be extremely fastidious, extremely detail-oriented, responsive, and trustworthy. 
And I would offer those advisory services to founders who want to know where every dollar in their organization is going. I would then build a relationship with a high quality bookkeeper that I can trust. And I would do strategy work. And I would talk to founders about how they can use financial strategies to improve their businesses and their personal wealth. And I think that skill set could be developed relatively quickly. Maybe I'm being naive on that part, but like, I'm not a big math person, Ian. Like I wasn't exactly at the front of class in calculus, but I personally see this as an opportunity right now. Like that skilling up on this stuff does not take years. You could get this knowledge in months, at least so you're outpacing the founders and you could get yourself a spot at that table. And certainly in this room in New York City over the weekend, what I saw was a lot of wealthy people who didn't feel that they had great financial support in their lives and their businesses. I'll give you an example of like how this plays out. And it's really simple. It's like basically knowing what cash you have available to you and then understanding when you should invest in things. So most of us are sitting here and we have like some kind of cash reserve, six to 12 months or maybe even more in these cash flow bootstrap businesses. We don't even know like when we should take distributions. We don't know like how much our salary should be. Okay. So that's part of the equation. The other part of the equation is thinking about if you invested that money today and on what, what your company would be 12 months from now. So one way to look at it is like, you're probably behind on your investment level in your company. Most of us don't actually want to take the cash out of our company. Like most of us have figured out a way to like live conservatively if you're starting a business or live comfortably if you have an established business. So then the question becomes, how much of that money should I deploy and why am I not deploying it? And I think most of us are just illiterate when it comes to that. You just don't have a good picture of your business and how much cash is in it. And so if you can start to build out that picture of like how much cash is in your business, then you can start as a founder to think about how to deploy it as quickly as possible to essentially make an ROI on it. Because there's no question these businesses are the best vehicle for making an ROI on money. The best, better than your real estate investment. Assuming you have a good business, better than your real estate business, better than index funds. Like that is the point of these businesses is to get an ROI on your money. They're amazing machines at that. I love it. So you're talking about providing this reinvestment analysis to a founder. You could provide cash flow analysis. You could provide payroll analysis. Basically, it's a strategic goldmine. These small businesses just going around looking for opportunities to create more streamlined financial instruments. Now, it parlays with another idea. Ian, do you remember there's one podcast in our niche that went viral this year? It's the podcast with Jeremy Griffin on Invest Like the Best. Do you remember that episode? I do, yeah. There was one path to wealth and success that Jeremy talked about that relates to this concept. He said, don't be the man, be the boy. And the idea was, by the way, this is uh, male-oriented, but of course it can apply to, to anybody. What he said was, don't be the man, be the boy if you want to become wealthy. Well, what did he mean? It's very often the case that a business has a man or a woman. The, the man or the woman is the person who runs the show. They are the chief executive officer or the COO. Well, that person is beholden to the organization, the goals, they got to work for a living. But the boy, the boy is mysterious. 
The boy is known in the organization as someone who has influence, who shows up to meetings, who doesn't really report to anybody, and isn't really on the organizational chart. But guess what? When there's a Christmas party or a private jet ride, the boy just seems to be on it all the time and always seems to be invited. The boy, importantly, has creative freedom and has the opportunity to move around the organization and do things that they deem important. Now, I think this financial understanding specifically related to bootstrapped internet native businesses like we talk about on the show and the founders who listen to this show gives you the potential to be the boy or the girl that comes in and is like, you can trust me. I'm going to float around. You don't have to pay me a lot, but you've got a sandbox that I want to play in. And this is the angle we're going to take. And I'm going to run you five different strategic analysis. I'm going to run them by these advisors and I'm going to bring them to you every month. And we're going to talk about how we can make your business better. I think that's a really cool opportunity for some people out there seeking the next step in their career. All right. Final reflection on the weekend, Ian. It's something we talk about indirectly a lot on the show, but I just wanted to sort of talk about it directly, which is investing in your network. And I mean investing money in it. Paying money to grow your network. Of course, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Like, it's considered unseemly amongst certain subgroups, like developers is one, for example, to pay money to grow your network. And I think there's really interesting reasons for that. If you're a developer, the way to grow your network is to demonstrate your skill by building something and then you unlock. But here's the reality. In business, your skill is often represented by uh, investable or disposable income. And so if you're able to pay for access to something like, say, a skybox at the Nets or, say, a high-ticket event, that, to a degree, if there's a filtering process that filters for the fact that you own your own company, represents your skill level or your experience level in business by definition, right? We're here to make money. And so I think it was just remarkable to me to see the raw dollar figures and also the percentage of take-home that people this weekend have invested into their network. And I think it's partially because we run the DC and we run these events that I don't have that level of reinvestment rate. And I flew home questioning whether that was a good decision for me. Because our members are like, well, I spend 20% of my take-home. And these are big numbers. Like They're making a lot of money. Going to events like this and meeting people, getting on airplanes and having these expensive hobbies that expose me to people like this. And I, I don't know, and that was just something I wrote down. I'm like, man, I think I'm getting outclassed by our customers in terms of how they're investing in their networks. Well, it certainly is interesting. I ran some basic numbers like of everybody that was at the event collectively, almost $100 million in revenue. And so when you can get in a room like that with people that have that type of experience and like understanding and knowledge and connections, there is no way that you can't walk away with something that's going to aid you in your journey forward. So one of the other things that I heard during the weekend that was interesting to me was because there was a threshold to come to this event, meaning you had to have over a million dollar business. One of the things I heard was like, whatever this person is going to say, it is qualified with the fact that they had to meet in a certain bar to get here. So if you can figure out a way to like qualify the group, especially, I think that that can be really important. Yeah. And I also think there's a period of discovery that's necessary with a lot of this stuff. So part of the challenge in investing in your network is like every dollar invested directly isn't going to bring back $2. There's a bit of a distribution to it where 
like a lot of the dollars will just be dollars that you spend. <laughs> and then like yeah. a couple of the dollars are going to make the big return for you. And you've got to have the confidence. Just as a rule of thumb, Ian, like one of the interesting things about investing in your network is you can do it on your company. And so a lot of the investing is done pre-tax. And so you can justify it that way. But if someone is, say, making $100,000 a year from their business, it's not uncommon that I'm seeing about 20,000 go back in to building their network. So about 20%. Anyway, Ian, I just think that's pretty interesting. I know we're, we're busy with our own events. And so maybe that's a little bit of the reason that I'm not always pulling out the plastic and like jumping out to other sorts of things. But it definitely got me thinking, are there other ways? If we're doing DC events all year long, maybe there's ways that I can go meet people that I'd like to build a relationship with directly by having lunches and dinners in other cities, people that we could collaborate with and learn from. Can I take my hobbies to the next level and, and connect with other founders, long form people that like to do those things here in Austin and beyond? And, and so it definitely got my mind working on those fronts. Well, and I don't think it ever ends. We had special guest anchor Nagpal of uh, Teachable, sold Teachable a couple of years ago. And he came out and talked to the group, did a Q&A, and then he came to the basketball game. And it never ends. Like Anchor's like very interested in like what all these entrepreneurs are up to. And he doesn't have to be at this point. I think networking is like not the right word for it. It's like relationship building and learning. Yeah. I'm trying to learn about what other founders are doing and I'm trying to build relationships with people that can help me. Yeah. What's better than that? So super cool, inspiring. Final piece here. I just want to kick off the end. We had a special episode this week about our new Mexico event in Playa del Carmen. I had such a blast this weekend given the hard pitch for that to everybody. Like everybody in New York, I'm like, you got to come down to, like it's going to be so much fun. I'm just so personally excited to welcome everybody down there and show them what I experienced last year. Just all the fun I had down there. Everybody's going to share in this fun. We're going to have a blast. And our uptick has been amazing. We're going to have definitely a very sizable group of founders uh, down in Playa del Carmen. We're seeing the numbers come through like as we do the podcast right now, they're popping into Slack on my second monitor here. It's really rewarding to have a product that has that momentum and people are voting with their wallets. So it's really cool. And you know, getting back to like this networking, it's like as an event organizer, this is like the work that you have to do. You have to convince people that the network at this event is going to be worth it. And if all else fails, then you start going to things like Margarita. <laughs> There's a beach right out front of the hotel. Yeah. There's a backup Fifth plan. Street. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. If you don't like the people, you'll love this margarita. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ian. I think we have some recovery time required. We've been full on, full on for, I mean, even the whole team. It's not just us, but there's this, this energy at the virtual water cooler where there's so much going on in the company. There's so much momentum and excitement around what we're up to. And I think everybody's going to have a really well-earned holiday break at the Tropical MBA home offices. Looking forward to it. We always shut down between Christmas and New Year's. So no expectations. If you guys email us, you might find an autoresponder with a palm tree. I like how your your life is completely changing though because we're coming on here and saying that we love this vacation policy. And it's like, oh, damn, I got calls actually. <laughs> <laughs> your favorite holiday was booked with calls and you actually, yeah. it, it went well, right? The calls are kind of awesome. So not that bad. Not that bad to work on a holiday. You heard it here first. Lifestyle business focused. That's right. All right. You work on Christmas so you can take off the next Tuesday. More hustle porn next Thursday morning. Thanks for joining us, everyone. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.